Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go through recent developments in the public safety labor relations world. And boy, have there been a lot. I've been kind of remiss lately in talking about uh, cases and court decisions. I know everybody's missed that terribly. Um, and uh, we've got a, a bunch that I think are very important. It's, it's going to be sort of a potpourri edition where I talk about different themes in the law that we're seeing developing in the public safety world. Uh, but first, uh, I want to talk about something from a personal level at LRIS. Uh, we just held our first seminar in 15 months uh, at the Luxor Hotel, uh, which is our, our, our home for 2021 in Las Vegas. Did a three-day seminar. We sold out. Uh, we had over 250 people in attendance, 250 socially distanced people. So it was just absolutely a huge room. And I just can't tell you how good it was to get back into in-person seminars and to see any number of old friends. And by old friends, I mean people in many cases that I've known for uh, oh, dozens of years uh, at the seminar. It's just great to have that personal interaction uh, because no matter how much effort and time you put into a webinar and goodness knows we we know that firsthand here at LRIS uh, there's really no substitute for in-person education I think about all of the school kids who missed out on a year of in-person uh, classes or college students like my freshman twin uh, twins uh, where everything was remote think about how much they missed well uh, cross our fingers, uh, we're back. Uh, and we will be doing a seminar right after you hear this podcast. We'll be doing a seminar on the rights of police officers. That'll be held from June 9th through 11th at the Luxor Hotel. Uh, and then we're going to be going to Nashville on July 14th through 16th uh, for our first in-person health and wellness seminar. This is just going to be an absolutely great seminar. Uh, we'll be talking with people from all around the country. I think we have about 10 different panelists on uh, psychological wellness, physical wellness, financial wellness, uh, familial wellness, all different aspects of it. And what have different fire and police departments and corrections agencies done in order to promote the wellness of their employees? And what are the risks of doing nothing at all? Then we'll take a break and we will come back in September, September 22 to 24, uh, for our regular seminar on grievances, arbitration, and past practices. That may sound a little bit dry, but this is a seminar that uh, to me is hugely fun. Uh, we have uh, our usual panel, a management and labor representative who will debate how arbitrators have decided a particular case. We'll have one of the most renowned arbitrators in the nation, Margie Brogan, past president of the National Academy of Arbitrators, and an arbitrator who can really hold an audience audience's attention. Uh, we'll have her talk about how an arbitrator uh, looks at grievances. Just a very fun seminar. I won't go through the rest of the year, but uh, suffice it to say, as Arnold Schwarzenegger once said, we are back. Well, he sort of said that. 
All right, let's take a look at the cases. And we're gonna start with a, it's a body cam case, but it is a case that I think says a lot more about uh, how an employer can or can't make midterm changes in mandatory subjects of bargaining than it says about body cameras themselves. Uh, so let me get up uh, some basic principles out of the way, and then we'll talk about this case. So basic principle of collective bargaining is that an employer's obligation to collectively bargain in good faith doesn't end when the contract is signed. Uh, there is what many people call a continuing duty to bargain. And what that continuing duty to bargain means is that before an employer can make a change in past practice about something that is mandatory for negotiations, a wage, hour, or working condition, the employer has to negotiate over that with the union, unless the union has waived the right to bargain over the change. So how do unions waive the right to bargain over these changes in past practice? Well, first of all, they either don't assert the right to bargain or they don't do it in a timely fashion by sending a demand to bargain off to the employer. And the second way is they can, in the terms of the contract itself, allow the employer to make a change in that area. Respectively, uh, arbitrators and labor boards will call those waiver by inaction, you don't do anything, or waiver by contract. You've got a contract clause that allows the employer to do whatever it is going to do. Well, it's this continuing duty to bargain that forms the backdrop for this Chicago, Chicago body cam case. So a little bit as to what's going on here. And because this is Chicago, uh, we are dealing with a horribly expired contract and uh, all sorts of questions as to what you do in uh, the interregnum, uh, so to speak. Uh, between contracts. So the last contract between Lodge 7 of the FOP and the City of Chicago ran from 2012 through 2017. Well, in the middle of that contract, in 2015, the City institutes a, a body cam pilot program. And it begins to expand the program. It expands it beyond the original precincts where it was worked, the stations where it was worked. It expands it both vertically and horizontally. And eventually the expansion gets too much for the FOP. And the FOP files an unfair labor practice complaint saying, hey, body cams are a mandatory subject to bargaining. Maybe you don't have to bargain over the decision to implement a body cam program, but there certainly are mandatorily negotiable impacts to the decision. For example, an impact on discipline or a potential impact on safety. Uh, an administrative law judge eventually hears that case in 2018, three years after the pilot program started, and the administrative law judge in no uncertain terms, it's a very strong opinion, found that the city violated its obligations to bargain when it refused to bargain over the effects of the expansion of the pilot program. Well, in, in the meantime, the FOP has filed a grievance challenging the imposition of discipline that arose out of body camera video. And an arbitrator hears that grievance. So if you get this on one track, 
we have the unfair labor practice saying you had to negotiate before you implemented uh, body cams. On second track, you have an arbitrator looking at whether the city's reliance on body cam videos in imposing discipline violated the contract. And the arbitrator said it didn't. The arbitrator said, uh, look, the past practice here has been that the city can discipline employees for equipment-related offenses, including loss of equipment. Uh, and there's no evidence that either the FOP or the city intended to treat body cams different from other pieces of equipment. So city, at least on the narrow issue of does the discipline violate the collective bargaining agreements past practice clause, the uh, arbitrator said it doesn't. So now we've got the third track. These are multiple out of the same station here. The third track is that the city and the FOP begin to negotiate for a new contract. Remember, their contract has expired in 2017. And they reach an agreement, uh, the city and the FOP, that they'll include bargaining over body cams in the overall negotiations. That agreement, again, because this is Chicago, lasts only a few months. And the city then tells the FOP, uh, you know what, we want to negotiate the impacts, the effects of body cams separately from overall contract negotiations. And not only that, guess what we've done? We put together a draft memorandum of understanding, an MOU on body cams. And here it is. This is what we think the program should look like. Uh, and between August and October of 2018, so a couple month period of time, uh, the parties bargain over the MOU. Uh, they exchange proposed modifications to the city's draft MOU. And then in October 2018, they simply stop meeting. Uh, and there's no explanation uh, as to why it is they stop meeting. But they start up again in January of 2019, and the city provides the union with a modified MOU. It's modified, the title is modified, and the title is modified to read, Last Best and Final Offer to Union for MOU RE Body Cam Effects Bargaining. So the city is saying, take it or leave it. You don't accept us. Uh, we're going to go ahead and implement. The FOP didn't agree. The city implemented, and the FOP files a second unfair labor practice complaint saying the unilateral implementation of the MOU, the last best final offer, uh, that violated the city's continuing duty to bargain. It, the city breached its bargaining obligations. And this goes to a different administrative law judge for the Illinois Labor Relations Board. And the ALJ finds a series of things. Uh, and, and here's what the ALJ finds. Uh, first of all, the implementation of the program itself, not mandatory for bargaining. That's a management right, the implementation of a body cam system. However, the effects of the implementation are mandatory for bargaining. So for example, the effects on discipline, as I've mentioned, the effects on safety. The third thing the ALJ holds is under Illinois law, and by the way, this is the law everywhere I know where there is bargaining, 
you have to bargain the effects before the employer implements, even if the employer has a management right to make the decision. Uh, not, it's not just decisional bargaining that has to precede implementation. It's also effects bargaining. So that's the third thing that the ALJ holds. And the ALJ, of course, necessarily ends up holding that uh, the city, by implementing before finishing bargaining the effects, the city committed an unfair labor practice. But, says the city, what do you mean? We bargained. We weren't getting anywhere. Uh, we implemented when we were at impasse. And we know we were at impasse because we said we were at impasse. What does the ALJ say to that? The ALJ said, you know, Illinois is a binding arbitration state. Most states that have statewide collective bargaining, the bargaining process ends not with the employer's unilateral implementation of something, it ends with binding interest arbitration, it is, as it is called. If you have an impasse in bargaining, the arbitrator settles it. You got an impasse in wages, one of you is at 3%, one of you is at 5%, can't reach an agreement, the arbitrator decides uh, what the wage increase is going to be. And the administrative law judge in this case says, uh, city, you can't unilaterally implement until the impasse pro process is finished. And that means that the FOP has the right to go through mediation. And if there's still no agreement, they have the right to go to binding arbitration. Now, what about a remedy? What do you do with the fact that you have officers who may have been disciplined because the city unilaterally implemented its last best final offer? What do you do with that discipline? Because after all, you have the arbitrator saying under the contract, the city could discipline employees for equipment violations. And the ALJ says, well, that's under the contract. Here, we're talking about something much broader. We're talking about the continuing duty to bargain, the obligation to maintain past practices until bargaining through impasse is done. And the ALJ rules that, and I'm quoting, the city must rescind implementation of its final offer because the city was not entitled to unilaterally implement it, and at the union's request, the city must rescind any discipline it issued to officers for the loss of body-worn cameras, the loss of body-worn cameras under the new standards. And similarly, at the union's request, the city must rescind the discipline it issued officers for body camera misuse apart from their loss, although it can consider that discipline if there's any pre-existing standards. And so, uh, the dispute as to unilateral implementation in Chicago, dispute, uh, I'm sure, knowing these two parties, that's likely to end up before the full uh, Labor Relations Board and not just before an administrative law judge. Uh, and 
where this is just a point in the dispute that is ongoing between the parties. Finally, just an interesting little note about buffering and what the administrative law judge said about buffering in the case. What's buffering? Uh, it's not known to everybody, but uh, particularly people who are unfamiliar with body cams, but uh, body cams uh, can buffer the, uh, the recording before and after the recording is actually activated. Uh, and so you can have a length of time when the uh, body cam is recording. It can record audio or video or both. You can have a time when the body cam is recording when the officer does not know that the body cam is recording because the officer hasn't actually activated the camera at that point in time. Now, in the trial program that uh, we discussed a little bit earlier, the city had a buffering of 30 seconds on the front end, before the front end of a video, and on the back end. My recollection is it was just audio buffering in this case. Um, and the city, when it unilaterally implemented its last best final offer, uh, at about the same time, I think it did, it did this separately, it increased the buffering from 30 seconds to two minutes. And the ALJ finds the same thing uh, that the ALJ found on the unilateral implementation of the policies as a whole. The city's decision is not negotiable, but the impacts of the decision are negotiable. What impacts? And I'm quoting from the ALJ's opinion, uh, here, the increase in buffering time significantly impacts employees' privacy because it has the potential to expand the scope of video surveillance into employees' personal time, e.g. when on break, in the bathroom, or at lunch. If an officer activates his body cam within two minutes of a personal off-duty activity, the camera will record the officer's private non-law enforcement related activities. That's a privacy invasion and that is mandatory for bargaining. So at any rate, I, I use this case as I mentioned, I use this case as more as an example of what the continuing duty to bargain requires than I do as a body cam case. None of these body cam conclusions of this ALJ are, are different. All body cam cases that that I have seen that are coming out of labor boards, um, all body cam cases find the same thing, uh, that the decisions uh, are non-negotiable, but the effects or the impacts of the decision are negotiable and must be negotiated through the impasse process prior to implementation. That all seems to be standard. But this case is just a really good reminder that if an employer is going to make a change in past practice, and that decision concerns wages, hours, or working conditions, or has effects that concern wages, hours, and working conditions, the employer has to pause. Uh, first of all, it has to provide notice to the employees that it's going to make that change, but it has to pause if the union insists on its right to bargain, and it has to bargain before it implements. I want to move over to Cleveland and a firefighter case. Uh, shout out to Jonathan Downs, who's a 
a management side uh, public sector labor lawyer in Columbus, Ohio, who provided me with a copy of this decision. Uh, it's actually a decision from a civil service referee. Normally, I wouldn't be summarizing something like that, but I think there's a, a pretty important caution in this case. Uh, and it involves the termination of a firefighter uh, for a CBD-based drug test, a cannabis-based uh, derivative uh, drug test. So uh, here's what happens. It's a, a firefighter by the name of Gerardo, Gerardo uh, Colon. Uh, he becomes a firefighter in 2000. He has three very consequential injuries on the job uh, during the course of his career. Uh, injuries to his neck, back, shoulder, and knee. Uh, and that has left him with an ongoing pain problem. In 2017, uh, Cologne tested positive for marijuana, and he admitted uh, to smoking marijuana prior to the test to help him sleep. Uh, on that occasion, uh, Cologne and the city entered into a last chance agreement. That last chance agreement had a duration of uh, two years. So it's entered into on October 3rd, 2017. That date becomes very important because less than two years later, on July 10th, 2019, the city sends Cologne for a random drug and alcohol test, and the test was positive for a marijuana metabolite. When a uh, confirming test was positive for THC, uh, the city fired Cologne, and he appealed to the city civil service commission, and that's how it ended up before a referee. Cologne comes into the hearing and says, I have not smoked or in any other fashion used marijuana since 2017, and the positive results on my drug test were the result of having used CBD oil uh, to relieve my pain. Uh, well, the medical review officer for the city uh, begs to disagree. Uh, the medical review officer says that only marijuana uh, would produce the positive test result for THC. CBD is chemically different. And the MRO testified that Cologne's confirmatory drug test uh, produced marijuana metabolites uh, that were above the threshold, 15 nanograms per milliliter, which was the cutoff that's mandated by the Department of Transportation. Uh, and uh, Cologne uh, impressed the referee. Uh, the, I'm going to quote from uh, the referee's opinion a few sentences here. Cologne's explanation that the positive test is the result of his having used CBD oil is credible. His work history is admirable. His character witnesses were outstanding. His separation from the division of fire is a loss to the city. However, said the referee, there's not much I can do about this. As long as the federal government classifies marijuana as a Schedule I drug and without any recognized medical use, there's no alternative. I've got to conclude that the city's policies and the union contract mandate Cologne's termination. And so the referee ends up recommending Cologne's termination. Uh, and, uh, and I do want to uh, stress that if you're in a situation where there is random testing 
or reasonable suspicion testing happens frequently enough that it's something that people should be concerned about, you need to go to the Department of Transportation's website. Uh, they have a, a notice, it's called CBD Notice, uh, that was published on February 18th, 2020. We'll put a link to this uh, on our website uh, in the notes associated with this podcast. And here's what that notice says, just two sentences out of it. It remains unacceptable for any safety-sensitive employees subject to the Department of Transportation's drug testing regulations to use marijuana. Since the use of CBD products could lead to a positive drug test result, Department of Transportation regulated safety-sensitive employees should exercise caution when considering whether to use CBD products. I know what you're probably thinking at this point in time, because it's exactly what I was thinking when I read this opinion. Wait a minute. There was a confirmatory test here. The confirmatory test was a GCMS test, gas chromatography mass spectrometry test. And that sort of test can distinguish between CBD and THC. And the medical review officer said, Cologne used THC. And I think what was really going on here is the referee was really impressed by Cologne and wanted to say some nice things about Cologne in the opinion, but with the, the full knowledge that there was no basis to attack the MRO's testimony. Now, this is all going to evolve, right? We now have uh, many states uh, where uh, the use of recreational marijuana is legal, um, and even more states uh, where the medical use of marijuana is legal. Uh, I would anticipate that the status of marijuana under federal law will be reevaluated under President Biden. And the whole issue of marijuana prohibition is one where you do find people on both sides of the political spectrum saying, you know what, it's time to bring more rationality to these laws than we have. Uh, and any rate, but not in time uh, for firefighter Cologne, whose termination is upheld. I don't know what to talk about next. Two of my favorite topics, separate cases. Uh, one of them is deals with the Weingarten rule, uh, which I just love talking about because it's there's so many misconceptions about the Weingarten rule out there. And the other deals with tattoos. Um, so I think I'm going to start with tattoos. Um, a pretty interesting uh, case out of Massachusetts. To understand this case, you have to understand the unusual structure of Massachusetts law where a state agency actually does the testing for and creates the eligibility list for firefighters and I believe also for police officers. And the state agency is known as the Massachusetts Human Resources Division. And then local agencies use the lists that are uh, pre prepared by the Human Resources Division, use it for their hiring processes. Um, so, uh, this is a case that involves a, a fellow named Corey Matcham. Uh, Matcham wants to become a firefighter. 
and he goes to the Human Resources Division and takes the written uh, portion of the civil service exam and the physical exam. He passes both of them and his name is placed on the firefighter eligibility list that the division maintains. The city of Brockton uh, in Massachusetts notifies the division, hey, we need to hire 10 firefighters and the division authorizes the appointment of 10 firefighters. Matcham's name appears on the certification list. He's in 15th place in a tie group with four other candidates, uh, if you can just imagine that. Uh, so th these are uh, five candidates who are not in the top 10. The city wants to hire the top 10, uh, but they are five candidates, Matcham and the other four, who are the runners up. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the city reviews Matcham's application, presumably that of the other would-be firefighters, and the city's mayor tells Matcham, we're not going to hire you. You are ineligible because of your non-compliance with the department's, uh, and the title of it is, tattoo, body piercing, and mutilation policy for new hires. I love the mutilation policy. Um, by the way, most people are now calling tattoo policies, they're now calling them body modification policies. Sounds a little bit better than mutilation, I would think. So Brockton's policy prohibits two kinds of uh, tattoos, brands, as they call them, and body art. Uh, the first type are those that depict offensive subjects like racial or sexist or uh, topics or demonstrate hatred or intolerance. and uh, those are prohibited, and I'm quoting, whether visible or not, while on duty. Hmm, that's not Matcham's tattoo, by the way, but I'd love to see that case of an employer trying to discipline an employee for a non-visible tattoo. And uh, I don't even want to think about uh, the examination process that discloses that. Okay, the second type of prohibited tattoo are tattoos, brands, and body art like tongue splitting, um, the disfigurement of ears, that's what this policy calls it, uh, ears, nose, and lips. Uh, so tattoos or anything like that on the face, head, neck, or hands are prohibited no matter what the subject of the tattoo is. They're prohibited if they're visible to the public when wearing any department issued uniform. Uh, what about that word any? Any department issued uniform. I mean there are some departments where public safety employees are actually issued shorts or short sleeve shirts. Uh, would that mean that even though the employee chooses to wear a long sleeve shirt or long pants that uh, they would be prohibited from having a non-offensive tattoo? I don't know, but that's not Matcham's case either. Um, so the city ends up saying to Matcham, we're not hiring you. And Matcham challenges the decision, and this is another aspect in which the Massachusetts system is different, not by going to a local civil service commission, but by going to the state civil service commission, the Massachusetts Civil Service Commission. And the commission upholds the city's refusal to hire Matcham. Uh, and uh, the, the 
commission goes over kind of in loving detail, Matcham's tattoos, and he's got all sorts of tattoos in all sorts of visible places. And the commission ends up saying that uh, this policy is, and I'm quoting, rationally related to the legitimate purpose of maintaining order in uniform and the purpose of the professional image of fire department employees. So the public will trust and respect and have confidence in the ability of the fire department to maintain public safety and particularly to vulnerable and sensitive persons. Uh, the, the, the court, excuse me, the commission toys with reviewing some court decisions on tattoos. Suffice it to say, uh, tattoo policies have been upheld even under First Amendment challenges. They have been upheld for public safety employees. Uh, and the court ends up saying, uh, look, uh, the regulation of tattoos in a public safety system, that's very common. And I'm going to quote from two lines at the end of the court's opinion. Tattoos and body art have long been included as the subject of regulation by the federal military services, the Massachusetts State Police, and numerous municipal police and fire departments for many years. Although tattoos present unique issues and are not completely immune from constitutional scrutiny, I'll get back to that, as a general rule, the authority of law enforcement agencies to appropriately regulate tattoos and body art that its members or applicants chose to embed and display on their bodies is well established. So what, what is the commission saying? They're not they're not, tattoos are not completely immune from constitutional scrutiny. Where could there be constitutional scrutiny if courts are upholding these policies against First Amendment free speech challenges? And the answer is where a employer's tattoo policy attempts to reach too far into an employee's private life. So the example that I was hinting at earlier, non-visible tattoos, uh, there's a real question uh, from a constitutional perspective whether the employer can ever regulate non-visible tattoos without violating the employee's right to privacy. Conceivably, you could have a free speech case where the employer allowed some tattoos that had a political message but not others that had a different political message you, could, you might be able to make that claim based upon the employer's wrongful regulation of the content of speech. I haven't seen that case yet, but I can imagine it. But as a general rule, tattoo policies are constitutional and they're enforceable. Comma, but. Do remember, tattoo policies have disciplinary implications for existing employees, right? And what that means is, at a tattoo policy, the effects of a tattoo policy are mandatory for bargaining. Probably the decision to have a tattoo policy is as well. So if an employer wants to make a change in an existing tattoo policy, even though it may be constitutionally permitted to do so, may be permitted by a civil service commission to do so, it likely will have an obligation to negotiate over that change.
Now let's move to that Weingarten case. There's not much meat on these bones. Uh, this is a decision from an administrative law judge for the Wisconsin Employee Relations Commission. I think the whole opinion is like two pages or three pages. Of course, that made me sit up and cheer, but I kind of wished for a little bit more substance to this. But it illustrates a very important principle about the Weingarten rule. So the Weingarten rule is that in a union environment, an employee has the right to representation by her or his labor organization uh, if the employee is being questioned about a matter, uh, questioned by the employer about a matter that the employee reasonably believes could result in discipline. It's a rule that's been around uh, for over 50 years at this point in time, it comes to us from uh, almost 50 years, I'm sorry, 48 years, comes to us from the uh, United States Supreme Court and has been adopted by labor boards all over the country, some version of it, either directly based on Weingarten or based on some other aspect of a statewide collective bargaining law. So what's this Wisconsin case all about? It's about a deputy uh, by the name of Taylor Weiss who works for the Waukesha County Sheriff's Department. Uh, my apologies if I am pronouncing Waukesha wrong. Uh, and Weiss, uh, in late 2019, simply forgets that she agreed to work a double, an extra shift, and she went home at the end of her regular shift. Weiss's absence is reported to a lieutenant. His name is Mark Moonen. Moonen calls wife at, uh, Weiss at home and says, where are you? And can you still report for work? And Weiss said, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I can't come to work because I've consumed some alcohol. I've been drinking. And Moonen says to Weiss, okay, we're going to talk about this matter further the next time you are scheduled to work. So on December 16th, 2019, Moonen and Weiss meet to discuss the missed shift. Uh, before the meeting, Weiss had contacted her, her union representative. She's represented by the Waukesha Deputy Sheriff's Labor Union uh, and asked the representative to be present for the meeting with uh, Muna. Why? Weiss thought she might be disciplined for missing the shift. Uh, and the union representative, when the union representative gets there, comes up to Weiss and Moonen, and uh, Moonen looks at the union rep and says, hey, you don't need to be here. This meeting is not disciplinary in nature, so your presence is not needed. Uh, the union representative asks some questions, and she's eventually satisfied uh, that Weiss did not want her to stay, and satisfied by Moonen's representations that this meeting's not disciplinary in nature. So the union rep leaves. Moonen and Weiss then talk about the whole incident. Then, when the interview is all done, Moonen has a change of heart. He talks to other supervisors, and he eventually goes to Weiss and says, okay, you know what's gonna happen? We're going to bar you uh, from shift trading for a period of time. That period of time isn't disclosed in the ALJ's opinion. Uh, and that's sort of quasi-disciplinary in nature, right? You're taking away a benefit that the employee has. Eventually, in a matter of days, the city reinstates those privileges, but the union files an unfair labor practice complaint alleging that the county had violated the union's right to representation under the Weingarten rule when Moonen, uh, 
told the union representative, you're not needed here. And the ALJ agrees with the union. Now, I want you to think back on the facts here. Uh, Moonen, the lieutenant, has specifically told Weiss and the union rep, this is not a disciplinary interrogation. So why does the ALJ uh, hold that there is the right to representation? Well, it's clear that what is going on is the post-interview decision to suspend Weiss's shift trading ability is weighing on the administrative law judge's mind because the city, in fact, turned around and did take adverse action against Weiss. Nothing huge, but adverse action against Weiss. And here's what the ALJ ends up concluding. Because the conversation between Moonen and Weiss had the objectively reasonable potential to lead to discipline, Waukesha County, by the action of its agent Moonen, committed a prohibited practice within the meaning of the labor law by depriving Weiss of union representation. So this is, the, the, the reason I even bring this case up uh, is because it's such, I think, a good reminder, a good reminder to employers uh, more than anything else, and that is employers, look, if you got a, a member who's asking for union representation, why not let the union representative be there? Now. I'm going to put aside for a moment people, uh, you, you, every once in a while I find, find an employee who won't talk to any supervisor anytime without union representation. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about someone like Weiss who seems to not be a frequent flyer who says I want union representative after she's done something that could potentially uh, justify discipline. In those circumstances, employer, why say no to having the union representative there? I can tell you from my years of representing unions, union representatives being present at a meeting tend to get the story out much better than simply the uh, supervisor doing the questioning, if only because the union representative knows the story by having prepared the member for the interview. The union rep can also talk to the employee, make sure the employee stays on track in the interview, make sure the employee is listening to the questions and answering only the questions that are asked and those sorts of things. Why run the risk of some labor board later coming in saying, okay, you've committed an unfair labor practice, maybe you're gonna have to end up paying attorney's fees for the privilege, put that word in quotes, of kicking a union representative out of the room. I've never really understood that. Simply let them be there. And then, you know, if the union rep is abusive or there's some problem with how that whole thing is happening, sit down and have a discussion with the union about it and see if you can work out your problems. I want to wind up this podcast by uh, talking about something I've never talked about on a podcast before. Uh, and that is a blocking charge, blocking unfair labor practice charge. What is a blocking charge and when does it happen? This is going to take us back to Illinois, not Chicago again, uh, but this time the village of Crestwood. So uh, here's what goes on. 
there's a police officer in the village of Crestwood. His name is Michael Coutre, and he files a petition seeking an election over whether a statewide labor organization known as the Illinois Council of Police, whether it should continue as the labor representative for employees. So this is essentially a petition for a decertification election. And the council uh, had already, had only kind of recently been certified as the representative for employees. So Coutre is saying uh, already, uh, you know, let's have an election, see if we can get rid of the council. But when the petition was filed by Coutre, the council had already filed two unfair labor practice charges against the employer. Uh, the first of these alleged that uh, the village had interrogated employees who signed union authorization cards and that first election uh, threatened employee and employees and ultimately terminated four of them in order to discourage support for the council. The second unfair labor practice uh, charged that uh, the village engaged in bad faith bargaining, basically was dragging its feet at the bargaining table uh, until a vote on decertification, the one that Coutre wants, uh, could be held. We can only imagine Coutre was not a supporter of the union from the first day. And uh, when these, when Coutre files this petition, this whole mess, the two unfair labor practices and the petition for the decertification election, this whole mess goes to the Illinois Labor Relations Board and the uh, board issues a blocking order. And this is, uh, and these charges, these unfair labor practice charges, the two of them, are thought to be blocking charges. That's what this case is all about. And uh, the board uh, gives, I think, a wonderful description of what a blocking charge is and why it's important that a labor board have the ability to block an election under some circumstances. So. Uh, I'm going to quote about four or five sentences from the board's, board's opinion because, bluntly, I can't say it any better than the board said it. So here, the board says, a blocking order is appropriate based on the council's allegations uh, because the allegations, if true, would have a tendency to interfere with a fair and free election. The council asserts that the employer threatened employees with termination if they did not sign the petition to remove the council as the employee's exclusive representative. The council further alleges that the employer followed through with its threat by terminating the employment of four officers when they refused to sign. Here it comes, the rationale. This conduct, if proven true, would tend to discourage employees from supporting the council and would directly affect the showing of interest in the election. The potential for this alleged misconduct to interfere with a free and fair election is heightened by the fact that it occurred at a time when it could most significantly erode the council's support in the certification year and before the parties had negotiated an initial contract. So what a blocking charge is, is when you have a, a petition for some sort of election on certification where it might be employees are 
looking to change who their union is, or simply, as in Coutre's case, get rid of the union, get rid of a union entirely. So we have some petition for an election to establish the right of a union to bargain, and you have unfair labor practice charges that make allegations that the employer's misconduct could impact the results of the election. You don't see many of these charges because, uh, bluntly, you don't see uh, many contested elections like this. Uh, you know, in the fire service, you never see them because all fire unions are, or almost all, are members of the International Association of Firefighters. And on the police side, you only see the shifting back and forth between unions or getting out of unions. You only see it in a few states. Uh, you do see it in Illinois from time to time. You see it in Ohio from time to time. And you see it in Florida from time to time. But that's about it. You don't really see it anywhere else. Uh, so this whole concept of a blocking charge is not all that well understood. So I, I actually got pretty excited when I saw there finally was a public safety blocking charge case. And there you have it. Now you know. Uh, that's what a blocking charge is. Well, that's it for this edition of First Thursday. I want to thank you for uh, joining me and uh, I, I want to let you know we've got uh, a premium podcast coming up. I will be interviewing somebody about the recently released guidance from the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission uh, about uh, mandatory vaccination programs. When can you have a mandatory vaccination program? What are the exceptions? What kind of reasonable accommodation is appropriate? All of that sort of stuff. I'm going to be uh, interviewing an attorney from San Francisco on that, and I think that's going to be really fascinating. Watch for that uh, sometime over the next few few weeks. And of course, we hope to see you at one of these seminars. Uh, we're we're kind of out of room on the rights of police seminar, uh, but the COVID restrictions in Nashville have been eased, uh, and so we've been able to go to a bigger room. So if you're interested in wellness. Uh, come to LRIS.com and check out our wellness seminar. So with that, uh, this is Will Aitchison signing off.